0: to 2 Kings in chapter 6. 2 Kings in chapter 6. I want to read verses 8 through 23. 2 Kings chapter 6, please. Hear the word of God. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. Behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, He sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come on raids into the land of Israel. Now, we've mentioned a couple of times as we've been working our way through these narrative passages that the New Testament gives us a clue as to how we're to understand them, meaning gives us a clue for the purpose that they've been given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for instance, we read that these Old Testament events are recorded for us, for our instruction, really for our warning, so that we don't enter into idolatry. Uh, what happened in ancient Israel very often was, a, was a, a violation of the first commandment when God said, you'll have no other gods before me, and, and thus they worshiped idols, and, 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 and we see what happened, and so all of these events, many of these events are there, so that Uh, we won't fall into idolatry. But there's another piece to this as well. Romans chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 4, tells us that these incidents have been recorded for us for our encouragement that we might have hope. And that, I think, is the reason that the Holy Spirit, that God has put this particular incident, laid it out for us so that we we can have it before us for our hope, that our hope would increase. You see, hope is the desire for that which is good. That's what hope is. And, and real hope, then, if it's solid hope, it's the expectation for that which is good. You see, you may expect uh, to, to go bankrupt, but that's not your hope, right? Hope is for success. It's for something that is, that is good. Uh, you may expect, when you ask someone out for a date, they're going to say no. That's not your hope, right? Uh, You may uh, expect to fail a class that you take at the university, but but that's not your hope. So so hope is the expectation, desire for something that is good. And so when the scripture says this is for a hope, uh, what we're poised then to receive is an expectation of that which is good. What we're really poised to receive is a maturing of our faith. Hebrews chapter, one, or chapter 11 verse 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, hope isn't seen. If it's seen, it's, you don't need to hope for it. You have it. So hope says there's something that is to come which is good. And, and a person of faith then is a person who's assured, is certain, that this good outcome will come. That's what faith says. It's being certain, assured. There's an assurance. It's being certain that this good that I desire will come. It's a conviction being convinced of what we're not presently seeing, but we know we will see it. That's what faith is. And so, when the scripture says that events like this have been recorded for us to encourage us to have hope, it's telling us, this isn't too complicated for you to kind of work through, but think, uh, it's telling us that our faith will increase because we become more assured that the good that God has promised will in fact come. That's what this passage is set up for. Because you see, faith is always based on reason. There's always a rationale, a reason for faith. Television show years ago, some of you my age may remember it, a television show called All in the Family, main character was um, cantankerous bigot by the name of Archie Bunker. And Archie's bunk, Archie Bunker's definition of faith was this. He said, faith is believing what no one in their right mind would believe. I, that's fairly common. That's what people think it is. It's sort of pie-in-the-sky stuff. I want it to be true, so I'm going to believe it as hard as I can. That isn't biblical faith. If I could counteract his wrong definition with another television show that inadvertently gives a wrong definition... But really, the principle is there. It's a television show by the name of Bones. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. But uh, I'm not endorsing it, by the way. I just happened to see it. Uh, this television show, Bones, uh, one of the main characters is uh, a forensic anthropologist. That's enticing, isn't it? And, um, and, and she finds herself, this forensic anthropologist, whose nickname is Bones, trapped in a car, that's buried. And there's another person who's trapped in the car with her. And the other person in the car looks to Bones and says, I believe we'll be rescued because I have faith in Booth. Now, Booth, the character, is a special agent for the FBI. And Bones, who's this very analytical, non feeling woman, says to him, I don't have faith. In bones it's not faith but I do believe we're going to be rescued I don't have faith because and here's her definition of faith she said faith is an irrational belief in something impossible and she says so, so I don't have faith that he's going to rescue us I believe that he will because I've seen him do this before so what's she really say she's saying I believe that he is going to rescue us I believe I'm gonna see the unseen I believe that what I'm hoping for, that his rescue is really going to happen. And that's not based on faith, she says, because she really does have this wrong view of faith that it's an irrational uh, belief in that which is impossible. She says, I believe that he's going to come because I've seen him do it before. But you see, that's really faith. Faith is an expectation of what is to come based on that which is true. There's a reason for it. And what we'll see here, I think, is a reason for us to believe, a reason for us to trust God, and a reason for us to trust God so that we needn't be afraid. Now I know when I talk about fear, I know it for me. I don't want to make it sound like this is an easy thing to deal with. Some of you don't really deal with fear much for one reason or another some of it's a spiritual thing perhaps a maturity thing the rest of it people like me deal with it and i find that it happens and some fears are deep seated some happen upon us even before we know that they're happening upon us and there it is this fear some of our fears could be said to be very rational others perhaps irrational but fear nonetheless the question is, how do we deal with that? And I think we see that here because the, the promise is faith, that is, having assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not yet seen, in such a way that it will help us each time fear comes to deal with it, to deal with it. So the story is this, as, as I read it. It goes like this. The king of Syria uh, is conducting raids against Israel. What that means is that he doesn't come in in one big battle, that'll happen later in Second Kings, but he doesn't come in one big thrust, but just little raids and comes and steals stuff from the people of Israel and takes it back home. Uh, and so he sends out various raiding parties from time to time. And, and so he meets with his, his people who are gonna do the raids and he says, let's go set up camp in Israel here. But at every time he goes to set up camp in that place where he's planned, the Israelites are already there. And he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand how this is happening. And he thinks that there must be a traitor amongst his people. And so he goes to his commander and he said, okay, who among us uh, is on the side of Israel? Who's telling them where we're going to camp? And the commander said, it isn't any of us really. It's this prophet in Israel named Elisha. And, and, And he knows what the king says, even in his bedroom, meaning in his most intimate place, his most secure place. This Elisha guy knows exactly what you're saying all the time, and that's the problem. So the king of Syria says, all right, let's go find him. Now, that's kind of a funny thing to say, especially since you would think that Elisha would go, I just heard what he said. But, you know. So he goes, he goes to find him, and Elisha allows himself, in a sense, to be found, and, you, and you, we, we know why, because Elisha really isn't afraid. Now, Elisha's servant sees what happens. All these horses and chariots come, and they, they circle the whole city of Dothan, where Elisha and his servant are, 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 are. And, and, and so the servant gets up in the morning, opens the blinds, looks out, and sees this whole vast army there, does the masses, blah, da da two, this isn't good. And so he goes to Elisha, and he says, what can we do? And Elisha says, don't be afraid. No. You ever been really afraid and somebody comes to you and says, don't be afraid? How helpful is that? (laughs) Right? Uh, You need a reason not to be afraid. Uh, Especially since your fear is by all, you know, most stretches of the imagination, rational. Rational. Again, do the math. You've got this whole vast army and two of us. So why wouldn't any reasonable, rational human being be afraid in that kind of a situation? And so Elisha said, well, here's the reason. There are more with us than with them. Two. All right. (laughs) Now what? And so Elisha then prays. And he prays that God would open his servants' eyes And when his servants' eyes are open, what does he see? He sees more with them than with the enemy. He sees all these horses and chariots of fire. The fire part means it's the very army of God. And, and, And Elisha knew that such existed because when Elijah, the prophet, was taken up to glory, you might remember, he saw that very thing. He says, oh yeah, I see. The veil was lifted. He said, oh yes, I see how it is that God protects his people. And so he says to his servant, Don't be afraid. At that point, he had the reason, he had the sight. He said, Oh, yes, of course, I don't need to be afraid. He was convinced then that the very thing for which he hoped, that is, safety, would be really true. And then he could count on it. Now, it's fascinating in this story, there's this contrast between those who can see and those who can't, because the very next group of people are made to be blind those who had come around the city of Dothan who were the Syrian army, uh, uh, Elisha then prays that they would become blind. And their blindness is an interesting blindness because Elisha says to them, come, follow me. Yeah, well, they're blind. Well, it seems that it's, it's a confusion, if you will, and in their mind. And so they, they actually follow then Elisha to Samaria, which is the capital there, and, 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 and the king of Israel is there. So he takes the Syrian army, right into the presence of the king of Israel, right into, for them, the enemy's camp. And so the king of Israel looks and he says, oh, this is great, let's kill them. And Elisha says, no, 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 let's feed them. Let's put out a banquet for them, let's feed them. And so you see, their eyes are open, and when their eyes are open, they see the king of Israel, no doubt becoming afraid, but what they really see when their eyes are opened... Is grace. They didn't deserve that banquet. They didn't deserve their freedom. But that's what they got. How does this give us hope? The scripture is interesting as we read because it speaks often of fear. For instance, we have that great passage that we all know from the shepherd's psalm, from Psalm 23. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, valley of the shadow of death is real, we'll all die. But it's also a figure of speech, a metaphor, for the scariest place a human being can know. And so when David's writing this psalm, he wants to tell us that in the scariest place for a human being when it appears as if we're losing everything, indeed, our very lives. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? is there a reason for that is there something i can hang on to other than just sort of faith that says that oh i think everything is going to work out all right even though i'm going through the valley of the shadow of death and the answer is even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil why because you god the shepherd are with me your rod and your staff that is the tools of the shepherd that the shepherd uses to ward off all enemies are going to be used by God for me, even in the most difficult place, in the scariest place. So it's reasonable. It's rational not to be afraid, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, that doesn't mean we won't feel fear in the midst of these kinds of circumstances. But our mind goes back to this. And and the key there is to set our sights on the one who's with us. And it's not irrational because it's not impossible for him to keep us safe, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, it is for me. I mean, if I were trusting me or trusting you, I'd be in trouble. We'd be in trouble. But, but, but we're not. The, the point is it's God. He's with us. If that is true, if that's the rationale, if it's really true, then I need not fear. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Even though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Psalm 46 the mountains are falling in the heart of the sea, and I'm anywhere close. I'm scared, right? And we take that as a metaphor for the difficulties of life and, and the horrible things that can happen. There's fear that comes, but he says, since God, this is the rationale. This is the reason. Since God is my refuge and strength, then why should I fear? It's God because he's strong, you see. Stronger than the mountains he's stronger than the sea he's stronger than the earth he made it all so i shouldn't be afraid the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear the lord is the stronghold of my life of whom should i be afraid you see it isn't just this word don't be afraid that's not very helpful but don't be afraid because, and at the end of that, because if there's a real reason that, that, that means you needn't be afraid, and the real reason is that God is with us. In fact, the prophet Isaiah speaks of, 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 of this fear uh, and not being afraid. For instance, in Isaiah uh, chapter 41, we're going to sing this during our communion time. Psalm 41 verse 9 You are my servant. I've chosen you and and, and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so he's telling Israel, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I am with you. And In fact, this was simply a reiteration of what Moses had, had told the people. He told them not to be afraid when they came up against enemies. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 1. We read this When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel. Today you're drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Now, do you remember that many times when Israel was facing its enemies, the enemies had more soldiers, more troops, more chariots, more horses more everything. Thus, when they did the math, they could be afraid, but God continued to say, don't be. There there was a time when Joshua was commander and he was leading the forces of Israel against an enemy and and Moses went up on the mountain to pray. Do you remember that as Moses prayed Israel marched through. But, but, but when Moses' prayers began to falter, when he got tired, Israel was pushed back. And so do you remember what happened? There were two priests who went on that mountain with Moses, Aaron and Hur, and they held up Moses' arms as he prayed. And that gave him strength to pray. And, and as he prayed then, Israel was victorious. Why? Because they had more soldiers? No, because God was fighting for them. That was their hope in the midst of their enemies. Was it a rational hope? Yes. Why? Because God was stronger than their enemies. David, when he came up against Goliath, you know what gave David courage to fight Goliath? It wasn't the armor that he could wear that belonged to Saul because that didn't fit and he had to take it off. So he didn't have a great deal of confidence in a couple of stones. He didn't have any confidence necessarily in himself. But what he knew was that when Goliath made a threat against the Israelites, he was making a threat against God. When we made a threat against God, then David said, Oh, this is a piece of cake. He's just a giant. We have God. And so he went out and slew the giant. You remember Jehoshaphat, my dear friend. Jehoshaphat is there and he sees enemies on every corner of. Of, of the globe and he does the math and he realizes there are more troops out there against them than he could ever muster from the people that are with him and so what does he do well first the scripture says that he's afraid and then the next line is he turned and sought the Lord and his prayer you remember is one that we should always keep close his prayer was we don't know what to do but little rhyme our eyes are upon you and so as you see that, he, he cast his sight, not upon the enemies, not upon himself, not upon his own resources or strength, but he cast his sight upon God. And when he did that, then the prophet came to him and said, don't worry, Jehoshaphat, God will fight for you. And then the next line to Jehoshaphat from the prophet was, now tomorrow go and face them. And of course, I would have said to the prophet, if God's going to fight, let him go and face them. But you see he doesn't remove us from it, but he faces the enemy through us. And then that classic next expression you can read this in Second Chronicles chapter 20. The classic next expression was, "Then they awoke early in the morning." And the reason that that's wonderful is that it meant that they went to sleep, and it means they went to sleep in the face of their enemies. And what that means is they waited upon the Lord. They waited upon Him. They trusted in Him. And they weren't afraid. I mean, there's some nights I'm not afraid and I still can't sleep. Most nights when I am afraid, I can't sleep. They weren't afraid. Why? It wasn't irrational. It was quite rational. God was going to deal with it. They had that faith. Their hope, their assurance, was in the word of God that he would fight for them. You remember the next day, they went out and faced the enemies and God says, I'll show you how good I am at this. Don't fight, sing. And so they sang. And as they sang, the armies around them got distracted and destroyed themselves. And so you see, that's our hope. So God says, if I'm with you, you really don't need to be to be afraid and isn't that the word that we need can you we really live in the world in which we live as the people we are without fear i mean listen to watch read the news there are wars all over the place children are being massacred A number of emotions come when we read of these things and hear these things and watch these things. Perhaps anger, I suppose, but but also fear. That can happen there. It can happen here. That can happen to their children. It can happen to our children. Of course, the economy. Can we trust it? The gains of a couple of months ago are now losses today. Students, bless you. You came into college Eight years ago, you anticipated a job, and there are just not very many. That not only makes you afraid, but your parents. And students are entering into the university now, wondering, are there going to be jobs when I get out? That's a fear. It wasn't a fear, perhaps, in the previous generation, but this one, it is a real fear. What is life going to be like? The first generation, perhaps, that thinks that they won't be as well off as their parents or better. It's fear, you see. How do we deal with that kind of fear, personal fear in the context of relationships? We see tragedies in marriages and we wonder, how can mine survive? We see difficulties in families and we wonder, how can mine survive? We see physical problems with people. Read the obituaries. It's not all old people that die. We read that and we... Wonder about our own lives. What's going to happen in my next doctor's appointment? What's going to happen when I wake up in the morning? with well, this pain. It's all these kinds of things that, that strike us. And we know our own frailty as the evil one tempts us. How are we going to maintain, persevere? How are we going to keep the faith? How are we going to walk this out without falling into dreadful, catastrophic, grievous sin? fear, you see. And so the question is, how do we deal with that? How do we live? How do we face life? You know, when I do a funeral, I often talk about how does we face death, but you know, really facing life is is just as big an issue. How do we face the life in which we live? And, and And the answer is, what are we seeing? What are we seeing? What are we looking at? You remember Peter, the day that Jesus beckoned him to come and walk on water with him. As long as Peter had his sights on Jesus, all was well. But what happened, the waves got a bit big and all of that. He drew his attention from Jesus to those waves. What happened? He sunk. Sometimes we sink. It's all about what we're looking at. Before I get to that, though, this. Why is it that if God is so definitively fighting for us that it doesn't seem like that? The bombs are going off all around us in our lives and the lives of others. And don't you want to just say, okay, God, uh, that's the horses, chariots, fire, time, you know, get ready, gear up, help me here. Why'd this happen if you're there so much protecting? And of course, the answer is life is complicated. But we also realize that there's a war and there's battles and there are times when battles are stretched and there's reasons for battles to be stretched in our lives, for difficulties to be stretched in our lives. James writes to us that there's a reason for the trials we go through. The trials we go through are to grow us up, to enable us to persevere. So we trust that God has our best interest always in mind full of power, full of wisdom and love and so we realize that if he's withholding that what feels to be protection at the moment there's good reason for it and we must walk through it Jesus on the night that he was betrayed was being arrested and Peter didn't like it so you remember Peter took a sword of one of the soldiers and he cut off one of the soldiers ear ears and 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 Jesus looked at Peter and said Peter no 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 you don't understand put away the sword Then, of course, Jesus took the ear and put it back on. You would have thought that one of those soldiers would have said, we're going to arrest a guy who can do that. (laughs) Maybe we're in trouble. Uh, And so you you get it at that point that Jesus could have ended this at, at any moment. In fact, to convince Peter, he turned to Peter and he said, there are 12 legions of angels, if you'll pardon the pun, waiting in the wings. At any moment in time, my father could dispatch them. Now, in a full Roman legion, there were 6,000, so that's 72,000 angels. He says, 72,000 angels are waiting to come at my father's call, and he's not sending them. And the reason he's not sending them is because the scripture needs to be fulfilled. In other words, there's something that must take place here that requires me to go through this. Now, when the time is right, the angels will come. And you see, that's our faith. Our hope is that those angels are going to come. Our our hope is that this victory is going to come. And we're assured of it. But we live by faith through the trials. Trusting, not irrationally. Trusting rationally because it's God who is all-powerful and all-wise And he loves me. That if he withholds that, what feels to be, seems to be protection at the moment, that there's good reason for it and right reason for it. And I'll trust that what I hope for, that is a good outcome, will actually come. Now, Jesus proves this all. He he proves that he is the one that we look to because he is the one, as the scriptures refer to him, as the light. If you look through the Old Testament scripture. Uh, this Messiah who's to come is the one who's the light. Uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks of him as this one who's the light to the Gentiles. They're in darkness, this light will come so that all will see through him this light. What does that mean? It means they'll see God. In fact, of this Messiah who is to come, the scripture says that he will give sight to the blind and he'll release the captives Why? Because those who are blind live in darkness. Those who are in captive, are in bondage and need to be freed. And so as we read through chapter 42 and 46 in Isaiah, we we, we realize he's talking about spiritual blindness, spiritual oppression, if you will, spiritual captivity. And this one who's going to come, because he's the light, he'll show us the way out. He'll be the way out. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm the light of the world, everybody gets it. They know what he's talking about. He said, You can't see God unless you see him through me, by me. But you can really see him uh, through me and by me. So look to me, I'll show you God. See, well, can that really be true? So Jesus says, Let me show you. So he takes this man who was blind at birth and he says, I'm going to give you sight. You know we read this story I do anyway I read it at least once a year I, twice a year I read through the Bible in a year and all that sort of thing and other times I read it because I like it and, and uh, when my kids were little we used to act this one out you know I'd be the part of Jesus they'd be the part of the blind man and you know I'd spit and stuff it was great but think about it he was a guy who may well have just had sockets because Jesus filled him with mud a man who had never seen and Jesus just did this little thing, and he could see. Now, what was Jesus' point? Well, part of his point was he was a compassionate man, and so he loved him, so he gave him sight. But, but there was more to it. Jesus used this, as he always did, as an object lesson. When he said, when he fed the 5,000, he said, no, remember, I'm the bread of life, right? So so when he gives this guy sight, he's telling us something. He's light. Only through him, by him, can we really see. We need him to open our eyes. You see, we believe that, that God works by his word and spirit. And so when Elisha comes, if I go back to that story, when Elisha comes to his servant, he gives him the word. Don't be afraid. There are more with us than with them. But then he prays, God, open his eyes. And so that's what we do. We give the word and we pray God, open our eyes. That's this prayer of illumination. That's what we're praying for our VBS kids. I trust that's what you pray for your children. I trust that's what you pray for your spouse. I trust that's what you pray for yourself, that God would continue to give you eyes to see that which is true and embrace and believe it. There's a contrast here that that Jesus plays with these religious leaders. They think they can see, but they're really blind. They thought this man was blind, but he really sees. The blind man who gets sight believes in Jesus. They who think they see can't see Jesus at all. And so Jesus has this great play at the end. He says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus says, Using this figure of speech. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, the things that makes us blind is our sin. Sin turns us from God to ourselves. We think we've got it. So rather than the prayer of Jehoshaphat, which is, I don't know what to do, my eyes are upon you... Our prayer is, I do know what to do because I'm looking at myself. And we live in that blindness. That's what sin causes. Just like that Syrian army in the story of Elisha. They were blinded and they followed Elisha. They thought they knew where they were going and they didn't. In our sin, we think we know where we're going, but we don't. The only one who can open our eyes is Jesus by the Holy Spirit. He's the eye-opening Savior. And then you see we look to him, and once we look to him, then we see grace. We see this table set before us. He says, don't be afraid, trust me. You say, well, can I trust him? Is that rational, is that reasonable for me to not be afraid and trust Jesus? And He says, yes, it, it is reasonable, it's rational for you to trust me because look at what I've done. First, I've taken the guilt of your sin, I've reconciled you to God. And now trust me for all things. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after Giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And there's a sense in which he said, look at this. Look at me. Look at this. This is my body. It's given for you. You can trust me. If I can conquer this, I can conquer anything. Trust me. Same way he took the cup And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. If I shed my blood for you, and if my blood accomplishes that which is its purpose, that is to satisfy the wrath of God so that sinners can be saved, then you can trust me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And you see, when fear comes, we need to declare the death of Christ to ourselves, that he died so that our guilt is forgiven, so we need to be afraid before God we're reconciled to him, which means he's with us. And so Jesus says, I live to intercede for you always. I'm defending you. And think of this too. If my father didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for All of you, will he not also along with him graciously give you all things? You see what happens when our eyes are opened by Jesus? We see the very grace of God. And when we see his grace, we needn't fear. Because he's with us. Not because we're good enough. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earn it. Not because there's one more thing if we do it then. No. It's because he's trustworthy and he did it. So our faith isn't an irrational belief in that which is impossible. It's a a rational belief in the very one through whom all things are possible. Even my forgiveness, even my reconciliation with God. Let's pray. Father, pray for me and for us that we would see it, that we would see on this day Jesus. Even though the evil one desires to blind our eyes, that you who said, let there be light, will give to us light that we may see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So Father, I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would see him, that we would be sent to the cross, that we would see him there and we would trust him uh, knowing, yes, he did that. He is trustworthy. Open our eyes. We do desire to see Jesus. So I pray that as we come to this table of great sense of his presence that our faith will be strengthened because of the hope that we have in him. Father, I pray that even as we Cast our eyes upon him, that you would enable us then to release all our fears. And that this would become a habit of life to set our sights upon him as fear comes upon us, so that we may live. This I pray in Jesus' name amen as always to remind you this is not the table of grace evangelical presbyterian church it is the table of the lord he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy who receive and depend upon our lord jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and who then desire to live worthy of that gospel meaning a life of repentance confession trust in him Looking not to yourself, but to him. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections down the aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. uh, Dip it in the cup. And as you do, allow it to go off in your head. I will not fear because you are with me. Please come.